Good evening, Living Hope community. Um, everybody online, thank you for joining us, and everybody in person, thank you for being here. Uh, today's reading is, scripture reading is from Mark chapter 15, the first scripture reading, there's two of them. Um, it's Mark chapter 15, verse 16 to 20. Jesus is mocked, and the soldiers led him away inside the place, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisted together, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. The next account is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 to verse 31. And it's also under the heading, Jesus is mocked. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Testing, testing. Hopefully you can hear me. I believe the green light is on. <laughs> so hopefully it works. Oh yes, I hear my voice. Good evening, Living Hope Community Church. Thank you for those of you who are joining us in person and online. Thank you, Chris, for reading the scripture for us today. Um, so we're going to be talking about um, the lead up, basically, to Christ's crucifixion. And um, it's, a, it's funny because, you know, originally I had wanted to do this to help my dad. Um, give him a break every Sunday preaching. Um, but it's funny how God works because he's always said that, you know, God uses the sermons to speak to you as the person who's, who's sharing it. Um, and he uses you as the vessel. So I wish he would have prayed that I wouldn't cry because maybe some part along the way I'll cry. <laughs> um, because I know that God has taught me something through this passage, which is it's funny because we don't, we always look at the cross and I think sometimes we miss this, this part of the scripture where it talks about his trial and the pain that he went through and the suffering. So before we begin, I just want to say a prayer for myself and for all of you as well um, before we dive into this passage. So let's bow our hearts one more time. Almighty, gracious, heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity that we could come freely before you by your throne of grace. We can come and we can look into your word, your truth, where it shares your word and your life and your, 
And you, Father, your love, it shares that with us, that we might be able to come to know you more. And so I ask as we dive into your scripture and we hear what you have for us today, that we would um, hear your truth with open hearts, open ears, open minds, Lord, ready to receive. Um, I pray for myself that it wouldn't be through my own words or through my own wisdom that I'm speaking, Lord, but through, through you, Lord, and above all, that your name and your, your name would be praised and your glory would be displayed. In Jesus' name, amen. So first thing that I want, I want you to close your eyes because I want to paint a picture. Um, I want you to imagine yourself as a ruler, a king or a queen, and you're mighty, you're, you're royal, you're rich, you have everything, you're glorious, you're powerful. But even in all your, even in all your royalty, uh, the people that serve you don't really listen. They don't, they reject your law and they don't really listen to your leadership as much as you would hope that they would. And so one day you decide that, you know, maybe you're going to go as an undercover boss and you're going to disguise yourself and you're going to go amongst your people. You're going to dress up, you're going to leave your riches behind, your power and your rulership. No one knows of this. And you're going to go amongst your people and you're going to see if they will follow you, if they will listen to you, if they will believe that you are king or queen, you are ruler. You'll see what they say. But once you, once you dwell among them and you start living your life among them, they start to not believe you. They start to reject you and persecute you. <laughs> and at the end of it, they basically want to put you to death. And so open your eyes now, now that you've pictured yourself. Um, as this ruler, and I want to kind of, I wanted to paint this picture so that we now, when stepping into looking at the scripture, can kind of, in a way, put ourselves in Jesus' shoes and really understand what he experienced. And so, first and foremost, what I want to do is I want to talk about this next slide, which is about the 14, basically, stations to the cross. It's also called the way of the cross or the way of sorrows. And many denominations like Roman Catholic Church will use this basically to depict Jesus Christ's um, journey to crucifixion. And so what it is, they have like a plaque or a stone. I have this in my school where they have images um, basically engraved of Jesus um, walking to the cross. So as you see that there's 14 steps, starts off with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it goes all the way to Jesus um, being laid in a tomb. So this evening we're going to focus on five and six, which is Jesus judged by Pilate, and Jesus is scourged uh, and crowned with thorns. So this kind of gives us, like these two passages that we read will give us a gist of really what happened, and we're going to dive in deeper into, uh, into these passages. So there's going to be about four things we're going to look at. We're going to look at 
Why did Jesus need to be tried before being crucified? We're going to look at, where's the second point? We're going to look at what is the depth and intensity of Christ's punishment? What does Jesus' trial and suffering do for us? And then how does Jesus' trial impact us today? Does or should it change how we live our Christian lives today? So those are the four things that we're going to touch on. Um, First one, why did Jesus need to be tried before being crucified? So when I was reading this passage, I, I thought, you know, why couldn't he just have been, like, crucified on the cross and that was it? Why did he have to go through, you know, um, this whole, basically, persecution by the Roman soldiers? And I was like, couldn't they just have cut out that part and just took him, like, took him, put him on the cross, and then that was the end of his persecution and punishment? And so I wanted to look into this, and I wanted to answer this question for us. And so for my first point, the reason that they had to do this is because Let's take a look in Leviticus 24, 13 to 16. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there with me. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And so when I looked at this, I realized that the Jews and even the Pharisees of, of that day probably took really seriously what God had said to Moses um, in this passage. Um, so they were basically abiding by the law of the time, what they thought was right. And they said, you know, if this man, this guy is saying he's the Lord, he's got to go. We've got to put him to death because that was the, um, the ultimate punishment for those who blasphemed the name of the Lord. So that's, that's one reason. There was 36 different offenses, all including idolaters, magicians, witchcraft, blasphemers, and murderers. And Barabbas was the murderer, and Jesus was the blasphemer. And so they then, for my second point, had to decide who they were going to set free and who they were going to punish, because both were equal to the death penalty. So for my second point, what I realized when I was looking into this is that basically the crowd that was surrounding Jesus' trial that day was made up of religious leaders, Barabbas supporters, and some Jesus followers as well. And what happened is what the crowd did is they stirred up hate for Jesus. Jesus didn't have a chance. (laughs) And they convinced the crowd to put Jesus to death. So that's another reason. There weren't any supporters or people that would be able to speak for Jesus to say, no, keep him, Let's, let's have him go free. And then the third point, which I think is really important, is that Jesus had to be tried like a man, like any other man. And the amazing thing about this is he had to be tried like any other man because he had to fulfill the will of the Father. 
And so we're going to be looking at how he fulfilled the will of the Father through his trial as we go into this next, this next part. We're going to look at what was the depth and intensity of Christ's punishment. And so when we're looking at this, I really want you to picture um, what's being um, unfolded here because this will give us a great depiction of, of what really happened. <clears throat> so first and foremost, the verse starts off by talking about um, him being surrounded by a whole battalion. And so what I want us to kind of get a picture of what that actually looks like, because um, we hear battalion and we're like, maybe I don't really know what that means. So first we're going to look at a legion. There's a next slide. That, there we go. Um, and we're going to see this breakdown. This is what the Roman legion looked like. So quite a bit of information in this one slide. But basically, um, first there was a legion that was made up of five... 1,500 Roman soldiers, but they were broken down into little, like, groups, so cohorts, which was made up of 480, about 250 to 300-pound men that were Roman soldiers. So when they say that Jesus was surrounded by cohort, they're basically saying Jesus was surrounded by 480 Roman soldiers, 250 pounds each. (laughs) Uh, How daunting is that? So next I want to look at the four means of persecution when Jesus was tried. In the next verse it goes on to say, they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. So the first part of persecution was clearly mocking. Through the robe, the crown, and the scepter, these were used to mock Jesus for proclaiming that he was king. They first used the words, first used words to persecute him. The robe was dyed in purple to mock his royalty and his stature that he professed, and the crown was used to mock his kingship. The scepter was used to mock his rulership, his power, and his leadership that he claimed. And by placing these garments on him, they basically made him a public joke in front of everyone. Because what they wanted to do is they wanted to humiliate and belittle him for who he claimed to be. They did this to put him in his place and showcase him as helpless and worthless. And Christ allowed them to mock him and put him down, and cast shame and disgust on him, because his ultimate goal was to pursue the will of his Father. Have you ever been mocked for being a Christian, or belittled for your beliefs, or challenged, or made fun of, or called names because of who you were? This was three times what we experience today. Now, in verse 30, this is where it takes a bit of unpacking because it says, they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And I want to break this down so that we really, we really see what takes place here because they don't really go into any detail in Matthew or Mark. So I want to go into the detail of what struck him meant. And this involves 
three things. Beating, flogging, and scourging. And these all mean three different things, and they're three different actions. Basically, three means of punishment that the Roman soldiers took to really bring Jesus down. First is beating. So we're going to look at the definitions. Beating is hitting, knocking, pounding, striking. Basically what they did, taking a staff or something and striking him on the crown, driving the thorns into his skull, causing trauma to his head, and making him bleed out. Flogging to whip, lash, with a flexible instrument as a rod, cane, or braided rope. So this is usually created or made so that it can have a sharp sound or a crack when it strikes, like maybe cattle. That's basically what it was used for. So then they would flog him with a whip, and then on top of that was the scourging part, which caused terrible, severe destruction to the body in persistent pain. And so what they would use here is they would use a flagrum, which is an example of how they would scourge him. So what Christ experienced was what we see in verse 30, to beat the crown into his skull several times. Imagine a sharp object being placed on your head and then pounded into your head. The excruciating trauma and agony this would cause this would cause to you not only to your head but would affect the rest of your bodily functions then on top of that as i said they took a whip and a braided rope and they lashed him across his back bruising and branding his skin but not only his back but everywhere they didn't have any care for where they hit him it was free range Upper, lower back, everywhere, they struck him. And so, I just want to kind of give in perspective a little bit about the whipping. Um, it's funny because I grew up, um, I grew up and I was a little bit mischievous. And my grandma always tells this story about how when I was little, I'd want to like push my stroller up the hill. I didn't want to sit in the stroller. I wanted to push it up hills. But then I'd cause trouble because then I'd let the stroller go and it would go down the hill and she'd have to run after it. Um, and she'd remind me of that like every single time she looks at me. Uh, but if you grew up in a Guyanese household, you would know what comes when you're disobedient. I would get, my dad would get a spatula or a belt and he'd wrap it around his head and he'd be like, have a go, come here. And any person who's Guyanese can attest to this whether it's a, sh a cane, a sugar cane uh, from the broom, or if it's a spatula or a belt, you get two spank, one, two, on your hand. And I just think to myself, I would bawl my eyes out, and I would act as if I was dying, and it was the end of the world just for a little, like, slap on the hand. And I think, I can't even imagine what Jesus went through having a whip or a braided rope beat on his skin everywhere, over and over and over. The sting from the whip and even the sheer power in the strike of a 250-pound Roman soldier. And it didn't even stop there. 
Next, the Roman soldier would use tools to tear the skin, which was the flagrum that I told you about. They would strip Jesus and rip his flesh from his bones. The flagrum would have a handle with leather strips, and attached to those leather strips would be pieces of bone or metal or lead balls. And they would beat him and strike him with it until it hooked his flesh, gripped it, and pulled the skin off. And they'd use this to flog him. And they'd place his body in so much trauma and so much pain, and they'd create deep incisions and wounds, causing him to bleed endlessly. And so in the next slide, we see that there was even like specific ways in which they would hit him. They'd have to strike him. And this kind of showcases how they use the flagrum and how they position it to whip the body and get every single inch and area of the back torn. And it's now that we can understand why Jesus really needed someone to hold the cross for him. If you've gone through all this pain, beating the crown being driven into your head, your skull, your back being torn apart, I can't imagine him being able to carry his cross rather less than himself to the, to the cross and to Calvary. And so knowing what Jesus experienced, take a minute. How does this make you feel? The picture that you painted in your mind earlier, if you had experienced this kind of persecution, this undeserved punishment, persecution, treated as someone worthless, nameless, hated, cast out, and beat down, how would you be? What would you think? And so that leads into, what does Christ's trial and suffering do for us? And this is such an amazing part of what Christ has done for us, and we need to really look into this and realize that really we owe him everything. His blood from his stained purple robe that helped us to become clothed in the robe of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And from the crown of thorns piercing his skull, we became his children, adopted into sonship. Ephesians 1, 4-6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And through the scepter that was used to beat him and flog him and scourge him, we became healed through his stripes. Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. 
and through the flogging and the scourging that he took, we have been redeemed and forgiven through his blood. Amen? Ephesians 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And through the, the, the hate and the disrespect, we now are given the freedom to approach God's throne of grace. Hebrews 4, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so this time of need, to help us in our time of need, kind of leads into, why does Jesus' trial impact us today? Or how does it impact us today? Does or should this change how we live our Christian lives? Because we're so sometimes focused on his death on the cross, but I think it's so good to tie in what suffering he endured even before he went on the cross. And so I think understanding this part here, his pain, his persecution, it changes, it changes three things. One, our attitude. Two, it changes our actions. And three, our obedience. And so, how does it change your attitude? One, it changes our, our appreciation for our Lord Jesus Christ. The quality of his life, his strength of character, true dignity, meekness, presence of mind, depth of love, and steadfast of purpose. This comes through so forcefully for us that we can appreciate a deeper way, in a deeper way, the nature and intensity of Christ's suffering and agony. We can see who he is in this. We can see his love and as I said, his strength of character and his perseverance for his Father's will. It can help us appreciate what he has endured for us. And second, it, for our attitude, it changes our willingness, our willingness to pursue God's will, even in the midst of suffering. Because I know sometimes when we're in the darkest of valleys, how hard it is, is it for us to remember that Christ went through three, five times, ten, one hundred times more suffering than we experience here on earth? Do we remember that? Are we reminded of his suffering and how he endured even in that? Do we endure the same way as Christ did? And now in our actions... I think it helps us to be more reverent in prayer. Humbled before a God who gave up his life for us, was beaten and scoffed at and scourged for us. It helps us to realize who we're coming to in prayer. Our Father, our Savior, our Redeemer. And also for our actions, it helps us to be, as I said, some more submissive to God's will in our lives. You know, I think he just calls us to follow him, 
to trust him, to obey. That's all he asks us to do as Christians. Not to die for the sins of others or to lay down our life for mankind. But he's paid that ultimate price so that we wouldn't have to do such a thing. All he's done is called us to follow him. And how hard is that sometimes for us to obey? Next, it changes um, how we act humbly. And we, we start to be humbled by the price that was paid for us. It changes our attitude and our action of humility. And third, I really like this... Um, I like how it changes the way that we view communion. You know, as we break and we tear the bread, we are reminded of his torn body, scourged body, broken for us. I hope every time that we take the bread and drink the wine, we are reminded of what he's done and how much blood he has shed for us. I think it also reminds us in our actions to show love, to show the love of Christ that he has shown to us. In my dad's previous sermons a few weeks ago, um, he asked for us to do a kind act for someone around us. And I think Jesus didn't just do a kind act for mankind. He endured the cross. He took upon himself the sins of us all and he gave us freedom He sacrificed and he loved no matter how much it cost him. No matter how sinful we were and still are. His kind act was unfathomable. He loved in suffering. His kind act was persecution for our freedom, for our forgiveness, for our righteousness. His unimaginable kind act was giving up himself for us and what do we do what do we sacrifice in our life for christ's glory and to bring about god's will what do we sacrifice next it changes our obedience it causes us to remind remember that christ didn't lash out he was reminded when he was beaten that this was for his father's will Are we able to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger as Jesus was even in the midst of persecution? It changes our endurance of persecution for the Father's will. Jesus endured the pain and the suffering for the Father's will. And so we too must endure our pain and our suffering to fulfill God's will in our lives. We have to have faithfulness in our suffering that will go with us till the end. We have to have perseverance, faith, and trust, and obedience in suffering because we know God's glory will shine through in the end. God's name will be praised through it all, and God's will will be fulfilled through and during it. That is what we live for, for God's will, for God's will to come about. So why do we let suffering and the pain that we have in this world that doesn't even compare to what Jesus experienced. 
Why do we allow that to distract us from Christ's will, to bring us down, to place doubt and to place fear and anxiety into our minds? In our suffering and trial, when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, we really shall fear no evil because he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. And even in our suffering, suffering, we are reminded of the suffering that Christ bare for us, a suffering that cannot be compared to anything that we go through today. Next, it helps us to um, be faithful even in comfortability. Um, and I kind of wanted to touch on what I meant by this. But even Christ, when he was being persecuted, obviously was uncomfortable and it was painful. And, but when we experience uncomfortability, no matter what that might be, fear, doubt, as I said, what do we do in those circumstances? It seems sometimes that we let worry overtake us, and I'm guilty of this as well. We let worry overtake us so far that we don't even know what next step to take. Our minds are just clouded by what we, we think and what we're scared of and what we're doubtful of, that we don't have faith and trust that Jesus will take us through. But what we don't realize is he has already taken that doubt and that fear and the shame and the pain and the guilt already. He's taken it already. We don't even have to worry about it. We experience pain and suffering in this world. We cast our cares on him. It says, humble ourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do not worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. It's not life more food, more than food, and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do we worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If not, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into a fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek ye first the kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. 
Each day is enough trouble of its own. I wanted to read that whole verse because, I mean, wow, that really speaks to me. I am a person who, I don't know, I just get so much overwhelming thoughts. And you know those, those moments in your life where you're like, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. What does tomorrow look like? Oh, yeah, I have to make a list for tomorrow, and then I have to make a list for the next day. I, I'm one of those people. And I think what this passage in Mark and Matthew, looking at Jesus' persecution, what it has taught me, and I hope you'll be able to realize this too, is that there really is no need to have the doubt or the fear because he's taken it in those stripes, in those beatings, he's taken all the pain that we could ever experience. And all he's asking us to do is to give it to him. Give it to the one who's already taken care of it. I want to close off in reading this verse because as we are now going to be approaching Easter, um, this kind of sets the tone for what we are looking ahead to. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like no one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And each of us has turned to our own way, worried about our own things. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I want to encourage you that as we approach Easter over the next few weeks, that you will think about how Jesus' persecution impacts you. Does being reminded of this change your attitude, actions, and obedience? And if not, how do you allow it to change those things? Let's pray. Father, almighty God, redeemer, savior, and our friend, I thank you, Lord, for what your word has spoken to us. What it has helped us to understand about you and your unfathomable love, your unfathomable mercy and grace. Oh, Father, I thank you for that love. I thank you, Lord, for laying down your life for us that we wouldn't have to, for taking our pain and our suffering upon yourself so that we might be free and we might be given the gift of salvation to freely come to you, to freely praise you here today, to freely communicate with you in prayer. 
We thank you, Lord, for this freedom. We thank you, Lord, for showing us your love that we might have an example of how to love. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit to convict our hearts and to place those fruits, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, in our hearts that we might be able to show others, Lord. We might be able to demonstrate your love as you've demonstrated it to us. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and how you are working continuously in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.